before I read, let me say it's always our joy to be here and let you know this is our last Sunday. Um, yeah, oh. <laughs> the, uh, our children will be with us over for the 4th of July, and so we're going to do a family worship. You know, with seven grandchildren and four extra adults, it's a bit of a struggle sometimes to get everyone to church on time. And then uh, we will be um, preaching over at Hewlett's Landing again. It's about my ninth year in a row, I think, doing that on the July the 9th. So you would might put that on your prayer list. But I'm not here to talk about us and our being, I think you should have said reverse snowbirds, okay? Uh, we get snowbirds in Arizona. You might call us summer birds or whatever. Anyway, enough of the foolishness. Genesis chapter 3 and then Matthew chapter 4. Genesis 3, 1 to 15. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And now from Matthew's Gospel, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 11. 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as we consider your word, we pray that our hearts might be opened, the eyes of our understanding might see what you have for us from your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, that enmity is going away. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin with a test. I want you to go back a couple Sundays to Ned's sermon. Oh, dear. <laughs> Did he not remind you about enmity from Ephesians chapter 2? When he spoke of the middle wall of partition being broken down? Well, here we get a glimpse of what that means as we see the beginning of the end of enmity from our passages of Scripture this morning. So it's up to you. You can grade yourself. Uh, but, and I won't pass those grades on to Ned. You know, as Christians, we are engaged in a great spiritual battle. Now, that's not new news, is it? It's all around us. Let me begin by giving four examples from the past months that maybe you are aware of, maybe not, and that we can... Just go back to yesterday's paper, I suppose, or the news cycle and catch some more. But let me begin by giving four. First one, Hall of Fame, Football Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy took part in the March for Life back in January in Washington. He was labeled a right-wing extremist, a zealot. Tony makes no bones about his being a Christian. A team member of the Philadelphia Flyers refused to put on a pregame warm-up celebrating gay pride. Calls against him from the opposition asked for heavy fines for him and the Flyers for whom he played and against the NHL. The enmity continues. In Malta, of all places, 
a fellow by the name of Matthew Gresh faces possible fines and imprisonment for talking, talking about leaving the homosexual lifestyle. Malta bans conversion conversation. And a recent Canadian law states that the idea of heterosexuality as a preferred lifestyle is nothing but a myth. Now you all can, I'm sure, heap burning coals of, of those kinds of bits of information, so to speak, on, on us, but let's be reminded. Paul in Romans chapter one makes it quite clear where we are. There's a downward spiral going on and he ends in Romans 1.28 by saying, God has given them up to a depraved mind. Okay, so we set the stage. There is indeed enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So as we see and experience such kind of reality between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we want to react, do we not? Enmity, and I'm using it in its basic definition of ill will, antagonism, or perhaps the best definition, outright hatred. And as we read these kind of examples, as we hear these kind of examples, the tendency is for us as Christians to run around like Chicken Little and say, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Except, folks, we don't need to go and tell the king. He already knows that. And he's done something about it in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me disabuse you of that kind of a response. It has no part in our lives. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 16, the last chapter of the book, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I submit to you, and we will look at it this morning, the end of enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent has already started. And it was started when the Lord Jesus made his appearance as a babe in Bethlehem. Let's go back and take a quick look back at Genesis chapter 3, verses, verse 15 particularly. The 15th verse of Genesis 3 is sometimes called the proto or the first evangel, gospel. And here it is. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And of course, the last two verses referring to the crucifixion. But notice, please, God institutes the enmity. He said, I will put it there. I will put it there, which reminds us that it's not like while this world is literally going to hell in a handbasket, God is still in charge, folks. And God is watching over us and watching over everything that happens so that we need not fear and run around like Christian chicken little. What else do we know from Genesis 3.15? Well, 
God says not only will he put enmity, but he will sovereignly bring about reconciliation between the offspring of Eve and himself. I think what we see there, and as it works itself out throughout the rest of Scripture, the family of the true humanity, the spiritual seed of faith, will stand in conflict with the descendants of the first Adam who have aligned themselves with their father, the devil. Jesus in John chapter 8 tells to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you are of your father, the devil. There are only two families in the world, the family of faith and the family of darkness. And this is true in every age. And it will end. Let me tell let, let's remember, it will end when the Lord Jesus returns. And that will be a glorious thing. As we've sung about this morning, think about it. However, Genesis 3.15 also lets us know this will involve some suffering. The suffering, of course, is the Lord Jesus and the offspring of Eve that's being spoken of. It points us forward here to Christ. He's the true son of Adam. He's the true son of God. And while he, he will be temporarily bruised, Satan's little head is going to get stomped on. And it's already started. John Gerstner, who was a professor of theology at Pittsburgh Seminary, and I think he finally came into the PCA. But the late Jim Boyce in his commentary on Genesis says, Gerstner said, Satan is a great blockhead. I like that. You can take that home. Satan is a great blockhead. He thinks he's going to win. Well, guess what? I'm sure you all, along with me, have peeked at the end of the book. I read it. We win. Okay? However, we got to get there, don't we? So what about this, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? The Old Testament commentator Carl Friedrich Kyle notes regarding the seed of the woman that really that's the means God uses to bring about grace. Let me, let me explain. When the promise culminates in Christ, the fact that the victory over the serpent is promised to the posterity of the woman, not of the man, requires, acquires this deeper significance that as though, excuse me, as it was through the woman that the craft of the devil brought sin and death into the world, so it is also through the woman, and he's talking about Mary, that grace, the grace of God will be given to fallen human race, the conqueror of sin, of death, and the devil. I had never thought about that before, but the fact that God used Mary to bring about the Lord Jesus is a reminder that he's reversing everything, including Eve's and Adam's disobedience. So this translation, this understanding of Genesis 3.15, lest you think I'm stretching it a little bit, Jewish tradition has it that the passage is messianic, that it refers to Christ. 
and the church father Irenaeus. In Irenaeus, and he lived between 140 and 200. Irenaeus also said the same thing. So it's been the, the line of understanding. Genesis 3.15 speaks of and points us to the Messiah. But you know, this enmity thing is present throughout Scripture. You just have to read it carefully. Well, not even carefully. Let me give a couple of examples. As we move through the history of God's people, starting in Genesis and moving forward to Christ, what do we find? We find in the Old Testament that the hatred for Israel, the people of God, increases over and over and over again. Now, they're manifesting sinfulness, yes, but the hatred of the people of God is overwhelming. When we come to the New Testament, think of a number of things. When Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, the question of divorce comes up. Now, where do you think that came from? I think it came from, as screw tape refers to him, our father below. If you don't know who screw tape is, we need to talk. Then there's Herod. When Herod hears of the birth of Christ, what does he do? Kill all the babies, two and under, in Bethlehem. Peter, ah, the inner circle. Not just the circle, but the inner circle. Peter, in Matthew 16, we know the one part. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus calls him blessed at that point. However... There's a little bit more in the chapter that we need to pay attention to. In Matthew 16, starting at verse 21, we read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and he said, Lord, that's good news. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Far be it from you, Lord. Peter rebukes him. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. The opposition is real. The enmity is real between even the people of God and the seed of Satan. And he goes on to say, You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting in your mind the things of God, but on the things of man. And later on in Luke's gospel, Luke records in chapter 22, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. So it continues. And then perhaps the ultimate opposition is Judas, where in Luke 22 we read that Satan entered into Judas. And of course, Judas betrays the Lord Jesus. The opposition, the enmity, folks, is real. And it's throughout Scripture. But that's not, as Paul Harvey would say, the end of the story. There's more to come. And it's good news that continues to come to us. When we get to Matthew chapter 4, the temptation, let's look at that. 
what we see here, I think what we need to see here is kind of a reenactment of Adam and Eve there in the garden, except it's not the garden, it's the wilderness. Because that kind of describes the spiritual environment in which the Lord Jesus came. It was not a nice place. And so he's there to be tempted by the devil. And the word that we need to remember is if, or to echo Genesis 3, did God really say? But isn't that how not only Jesus was tempted, isn't that how we are tempted as well? We read the word and then the wicked one comes and whispers in our ear, Psst, hey, you, Tom, did God really say? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. So Satan tests the Lord Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And they're meant to cast doubt on God's word. But isn't that what the wicked one does? Ask us to doubt the word of God? That's what he asked and tempted Eve with in the garden. Did God really say? Yes, he did. And we're counting on it. <clears throat> the if, as I said, if you really love God, you'll do this. You won't do that. You know, there's the temptation that comes. And Jesus is tempted here three times. If you are the son of God, do this, do that. And again, notice that in, this, in the text, Satan manipulates God's word. He edits it. He makes it to his advantage, not to God's advantage. But I submit to you that what we see here in the temptation of the Lord Jesus is the beginning of the end of enmity. Why do I say that? Because Jesus' presence and his work in the world shows that the, the world to come has dramatically and decisively entered this present evil age and things, the wickedness, the enmity is going away. We're stuck, though, in what theologians call the already, not yet. Already things are changing. Not yet is it done. And so we're kind of tweeners. We think of tweeners as kids, you know, between being a youth and being an adolescent and all the problems that go with that. Well, guess what? We're tweeners. We're between being a babe in Christ and mature in Christ, and it affects us in so many ways. But that dramatic and decisive entry of the Lord Jesus and his work reminds us there's a better day coming. Now we have mentioned, uh, and Ken mentioned this morning, those for whom we need to pray. Wow. Our deacon is already seeing the Lord Jesus face to face. Others are seeing, the Lord family members are seeing the Lord Jesus face to face. We will see the Lord Jesus face to face, but not yet. 
And some of us may wish for that nearer day to come, but it hasn't. Because we're reminded from Psalm 139, all my days are written in your book before one of them came to be. But also that, to put it away, I heard a pastor refer at a Christian's funeral. Everybody's book is a little bit different length. Some are massive tomes like K, 100 years. Others are not quite so long. But often do we not ask the question, when will the end come? And so, you know, oftentimes as we're praying as believers, we end our prayers with Maranatha, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. But folks, it's not up to us. It's up to God. And he will do it when he wants to do it, when he's planned to do it. And scripture reminds us of that. So we ask the question, when, when, when will the end come? But the second part of the question is really, are you ready for it? Do you love the Lord Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? Or do you struggle? James reminds us in the fourth chapter that friendship with the world is, here's that word, enmity with God. Wow. He's looking back to Genesis 3. God said, I will put enmity, and if he put it there, he's also going to remove it. 1 John 3, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Now, what do we, how do we respond? Man, can't we just be done with it and Lord come? Well, I think in response to that question, we need to take what I call the long view. Now, if you had been part of, my, of the congregation in Sun City West over the years, you would have learned that I had a favorite word. And I asked not long ago if anybody remember my favorite word. And our organist spoke up from the bench and said, yes, it's eschatological. Now you look at me this morning and say, what in the world is he talking about? Eschatology is part of theology, which deals with the doctrine of last things. But it's also a reminder that we're in that already, not yet. We take the long view. Why? Because if I judge by, if I go pick up the Times Union and look at this morning's headlines, and I don't even have it, or I begin to read the front page or the editorial page, we would be askance at what's happened overnight. No, we need to take the long view and see that the Lord Jesus is in charge, God is in charge, and the Lord Jesus is on the throne. He hasn't come off it, and he's going to be on it. But not only that, we're going to see it. Genesis 3.15 looks forward to, to chapters 19 through 22 in the book of Revelation. And what do we see there? We see, first of all, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, church suppers here are nice, and we had one earlier in the month. And there was plenty to eat. But can you imagine how big that's going to be? 
the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everyone from the first saved sinner, and I do believe Adam and Eve are going to be there, all the way to the last believer. That's going to be a big deal. But not only that, there's going to be the rider on the white horse who, who has faithful and true written on his thigh. And then, we're told, comes the final judgment, but something better, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I don't know about you, but my belief in the new heaven and new earth is right here. This is all going to change. It's going to be right here. Earth is going to be renewed. It, too, struggles with the effects of sin, does it not? We wonder, who can change the weather? God can. And he will. Because I think some of the tempests and things that we experience are a result of sin. So what's to be our response? What's the takeaway from this sermon on the end of enmity? A couple of things. One, I believe, is patience. And I don't mean we go banging on the Lord, give me patience now. No, we need to have patience to go with that long view. It may be tomorrow, but it may not be until another millennium has passed. We don't know. The real question, friends, is will you be there? Will you be part of the new humanity? Are you part of the new humanity? Have you given your life to the Lord Jesus? Do you understand that that sin which occurred in the garden and which brought enmity between us and God is also taken away through the new birth given by Jesus Christ? Rejoice in that. Number two, more patience. Because I think part of our humanness is that we get impatient. We can be patient for a day, maybe even a week, perhaps a bit longer. But we need patience on top of patience. But be assured, there's a better day coming. And it's coming because God is faithful to his promises and will not slack concerning those promises. He will do what he has said. And what he has said, he will change everything. You know, the default setting on your computer sometimes, that menu pops up, and it, you know you, it's frozen. You don't know what to do. Sometimes the option pops up, return to default settings. If I can make an analogy, and it's a bad analogy, but it'll, it works a little bit is God is going to return everything to the default settings, which is his world. This is my Father's world. Let us rejoice. Pray with me, please. Father, you are great to us in so many ways. And we thank you for that. We thank you that the end of enmity is coming. 
And we thank you, Father, that it's through the Lord Jesus, our Savior. So, Father, work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. Help us to grow in grace each day. Help us, as our catechism describes sanctification, to die more and more to sin and to live under righteousness. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.